2: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: Welcome back, folks. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Just wanted to uh, remind folks that on Friday, I'll be interviewing Santa Claus for three hours Have your kids call in on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line, 504-260-1870 on Friday. It's one of my favorite shows of the year. Look forward to it. So don't forget, we want to hear from your kids, and they want to talk to Santa directly. Uh, And it's funny to hear um, what they ask Santa for. So we have a great time on Friday. Don't forget to do that. Let's go to Eric. Eric's up. Welcome to the show, Eric.
4: Hey, Noel. How are no. you?
3: Yes, go I'm ahead. I'm
4: doing fine. No, uh, no. Whatever happened to the assistant D.A. under Jason um, Williams um, supervision who let the um, some suspects go who were carrying guns doing Mardi Gras? I know Raphael and you were talking about it for a while. Was she ever reprimanded or was she fired or nothing happened?
3: Uh, to the best of my knowledge, nothing happened to Emily Ma. Uh, that was the individual that uh, was working okay. magistrate court that day and made those decisions. And um, But I think Rafi may be coming on the show Thursday, so I'll write a note to myself, and uh, I'll send him a text to see if
4: he's heard anything to the contrary. Yeah, I appreciate it. Look, one more thing quick. It's another subject that we haven't heard about lately, and maybe it, I've been out of town a lot, and maybe it was um <clears throat> you know solved. whatever happened to the Whina Foundation money
3: That is working its way through the court uh, still. Okay. and um, as you know, the New Orleans City Council filed suit. They uh, were challenged as whether or not they have standing, um, which is kind of odd. Uh, but that, I right. think, still lies with the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court, and we're waiting for
4: a judgment. I got you. Okay, I've just um But I, I'm interested about the assistant DA, whether or not she it, – it appears to me that she acted with the approval of Jason Williams. I don't think an assistant DA, this is my own personal belief, would take that kind of um, – action without um a higher pay grade approving it that's just my, what my that's why i don't think anything was done but anyway maybe wrap well up the, to give the right da
3: on. the benefit to give the da the benefit of the doubt and i have to tell you that you know when he's his he has, has been wrong he's kind of stood up and said no i i was wrong uh he said he, he was not aware uh of that and it wasn't a policy uh decision that was being enforced, so I take him at his word. Um,
4: Okay, well, if that's indeed true then, then I I think with a um, Freedom of the Information Act, then if he did not know, then I think she extended her authority then to make such a big um, decision for a number of people, not just for one person, but it was a number of people doing Mardi Gras, and that there ought to be a memo to a file, or, or there ought to be a um some sort of suspension or firing or whatever if that's indeed true that he never knew anything about it i know in, I, where i was I, I would that i would agree handled.
3: oh yeah no okay same same here no i would that's 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 that accountability theme that you know seems to meander and get lost somewhere sometimes you know and that and I think that's what irritates the public. I mean, they want consistency. They want a, a better understanding of what the expectations should or should not be, you know, as it relates to a lot of this. And and, uh, and that's where we get you. Si- sideways. You know, I always used to tell the men and women of the JPSO, you hold the public's trust in the palm of your hands. Absolutely. You need to, you need to manage it and massage it very carefully because you can't afford to lose it. Because when you lose it—
4: off, off, right you so got to work well, three times no as hard saying.
3: you got to work three times as hard to get it back
4: well the front you know, line it, people are always that's that's who the public um no matter what company you're in the front line people who um who are involved with the public are the ones that are representing you know the the, the company and they can do more damage or good for you than, than a, an executive in the company and and so you, you're absolutely right, because there's an old saying, for every person you make happy, they might tell 10. But for every person you don't make happy, they tell 100, you know. And um, But anyway, I, I appreciate your, your comments and all, and I'll look forward to Raphael's comment, if he has one, um, you know, about the guns and all. Thank you. All righty.
3: Thank you. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, that, that's Eric. I appreciate uh, the call. No, And what Eric brings up is so true, Um you know, and and that's part of the issue is regaining that trust, and it's hard to regain trust when you lose it. I mean, folks want to trust, but they they don't, and it kind of that kind of uh, uh, feeds into what I wanted to talk about here. That you know, violent crimes down, and I was telling you there's this uh, Wall Street Journal article that talks about, but why more people feel victimized, and uh, it kind of looks at you know, what is happening between public perception and the reality on crime. And uh, a lot of uh, folks, in fact, Ames Grower, a senior counsel at the Brennan Center for Justice, a liberal-leaning legal policy institute, said it's understandable that people would be worried about crime today and we have to take them seriously because when you look how the crime stats come together, it shows that violent crime can fall and people can simultaneously experience more crime because we focus on violent crime so much, but that's not the only crime. In fact, more people will be impacted by other types of crimes than violent crime. And when you talk to folks that have been victimized by crime, what you find is that they have a higher propensity to feel like crime is on the increase and not on the decrease the uh, national crime victimization survey showed that about 40 percent of violent crimes were reported to police in 2022 think about that four out of ten get reported the number of people who said they were a victim of violent crime rose 42 percent from 2021 But only 29% of those people actually reported the crime to the police. There's that trust, right? There's that notion of trust as to whether or not something is going to happen or am I just wasting my time? There's value in information. You've heard me say this before. Information is power. That's why you want to manage and massage that public trust so carefully because you want to make sure that you know everything that's going on on the streets of your city at all times and you don't want there ever to be a stifling or diminishing impact on people's willingness and propensity to call and report crime. Most people worry about violent crime, right? Makes sense. 28 percent of people told the most recent survey of Gallup, that their household had been hit by a crime, which was up from 20% in 2020, so it was an increase of 8%. But not all of these are violent. Gallup said that in the poll it revealed about seven crimes, including nonviolent ones, but they nonetheless matter to affect the household, and that's what we were talking about is that if you're a victim, you're a victim. It doesn't matter if it's a violent crime or non-violent crime, and you're going to think that the crime picture is actually worse. The poll went on to say perhaps unsurprisingly, 75% of households who report being victimized by crime say they believe that crime is rising in their area versus 47% of those who weren't victimized. So those that were not the victim of crime don't see the crime picture as bad. A lot of the high-profile types of crime also seem to be on the rise. Carjackings, which is a a subcategory, a subtype of robbery, actually climbed in in 2022. But what we find, and why this is important to us here, is that, for example, you've heard Rafi Goyaneci and I talk about this quite a bit. In the city of New Orleans, through December 17th of 2023, there's been 6,892 vehicle thefts where the car has been stolen. We're averaging about 20-some-odd a day, 20 to 22 a day. No, averaging, I'm sorry, 20 a day, 6,892. Now, let's put this in context. So we talk about violent crime being down. We talk about, you know, we're trying to beat back what this impression is of of where we are from a crime perspective in the city. Washington, D.C. has a population of 712,816 people. The most recent uh, stats. 376,971 in New Orleans. In New Orleans, in the same period of time uh, as um, DC in DC they had seven thousand five hundred and forty three cars stolen. <laughs> a difference a difference of about 700 yet not quite double the population, but forty percent more population. When you look at some of the other crime categories, you see similar, instances, especially when you're talking about thefts and things of that nature here. And that's, so each and every one of those folks, right, are victims. And that's why we have this situation where people are feeling as though this is a bad situation from a crime perspective, and they wonder whether or not it's going to get any worse got a text here that says what is the recovery percentage of stolen vehicles it's it's probably higher than you would think because they're abandoning these vehicles in fairly obvious places they're not going to a chop shop they're kind of stealing them pulling other crimes and then getting rid of that car when it gets figuratively speaking too hot and they go steal another car So it's this uh, vicious cycle that that we catch ourselves in. So when we go back, let's step back and go to the murder category, for example, as well. As of December 17th, in the city of New Orleans, we've had 214 murders. For the same period in Washington, D.C., with almost double the population, they've had 264. When you begin to look at these stats and you go and you put it on a per capita basis, we're not looking so good. It's better than where we were last year. And even in even in 2019, when we had one of the lowest crime rate years in New Orleans, it was kind of similarly situated. We were always within a dozen, two dozen or so, three dozen or so murders in the city as opposed to D.C., which is a far greater population. And a lot more policemen, too, roughly somewhere between 3,200 and 3,800 uh, police officers there. In fact, they're, they're struggling with the same human capital uh, problem that we, we have here. Um, and Kathy Lanier, who was a chief many, many years ago, said any time that they dip, I think the number she quoted was 3,800 police officers, that they were in trouble. Uh, If that's the case, they're in serious trouble right now. And so you begin to see these similarities. But a lot of folks, you know, when we talk about the crime stats, we really got to drill down and gain a better understanding of what we're dealing with. And a lot of times, you heard me say about the culture of noncompliance. When you go after something less than, less than a violent crime, it's interesting of what it reveals and it's interesting in what you will find and that's never more true than in drug cases and that's why forward-leaning police organizations have always been very proactive in drug enforcement because it reveals a lot of different things and the beauty of the drug enforcement case is that you know you usually stage arrest for the most part Um, the utilization of PPI, purchase of evidence, purchase of information, you're developing, you know, uh, snitches that are telling you about certain things. You have video, you have audio, you have a whole lot. And once you get by the motion of suppressing court, in a lot of jurisdictions there's a 99.9% success rate of getting a, a conviction. Now this same individual may be involved in robberies and Arm robberies and thefts and stealing these vehicles and doing things of that nature. So you clear a whole template of crimes, not necessarily convicting anybody of it, but they're out there doing that and pulling these day after day after day. And what happens? Victims go down. And we really hadn't had this in-depth conversation about this, but we really need to begin to. And that's why the numbers game, as it relates to the to the n- boots on the ground, is so important because of a lot of this. And we've basically are, have been non-existent in a proactive way in a number of categories in in affecting arrest. And we've had public tolerance has been diminished as it relates to aggressive enforcement on some of these crimes, and that's because. They're not aware of how this works. And it hadn't changed. It hadn't changed much at all, not in the 40 years that I was in. And I think most law enforcement leaders that are honest about it will tell you the same thing. The question is, what's the appetite of the public as it relates to aggressive enforcement? And what they're finding in Washington, D.C. today is that as they slid back and it became more complacent and more accepting of certain criminal behavior that was going on there, they got to a point of no return. And now it's out of control and they don't know what to do. We'll be right back, folks. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Stay with us.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game.
3: Folks, we know that crime knows no geographic boundary. Now, why is that important? Because it's important to make sure that uh, qualified individuals get elected to public office that are in the criminal justice system throughout the metropolitan area because the tide rises and falls for all of us. And, in fact, I always said as sheriff that our crime picture in Jefferson Parish could always be much better tied to the success of those parishes that surround us in fact there's a very important election that's going to be held in the beginning of 2024 as the result of a good friend uh, of mine uh, one who I had on this show uh, a number of times the former DA Warren Montgomery and his um, first assistant has announced uh, and he's sits as the interim DA in St. Tammany in Washington now that he's going to run for that office and he joins us Jay Colin Sims Uh, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having
3: me. How are you today? I'm doing well, Colin. So, um, first, can, you know, uh, I know it's tough uh, following in the footsteps of uh, a guy that you work for as a result of his passing. And our thoughts and prayers go out to not only your office but he, he and his fa- his family, excuse me, his family as well. Uh, obviously, this creates an opportunity for you uh, for changes in the office, uh, not not that it's better or worse but that it's different right and so what are you thinking about his future initiatives for the uh, St. Tammany Washington Parish DA's office
2: well it's definitely different Noel and uh Warren was a was a great man and and, and the best thing he one of the best things he did for St. Tammany was you know kind of reinstill confidence in the the justice center over here in in St. Tammany which is the kind of main focal point for a lot of the uh, prosecutions and and litigation in St. Tammany but you know, going forward, look, we've built a, a fantastic office with professionals. And we've hired all professional investigators, professional prosecutors that have most of at least 10 years of litigation experience. And so going forward, you know, we're going to do a lot of things similarly. We're going to focus on violent crime. We're going to help those that we can help that are, you know, minor offenders that have mental health issues and addiction issues. Um, but there are also a series of of, of programs that we are going to roll out um, in the new year, uh, focusing on three. There's an opioid initiative that we are going to be rolling out, um, and we are we've been meeting with DEA members of your old office, with Jefferson Parish Narcotics Group is a meeting with us over here, and we've been having meetings with the Orleans Parish uh, DA as well, and that's tracking these these uh, distributors of fentanyl and other opioids. Um, that are killing our citizens. St. Tammany had approximately 121 overdose deaths last year um, for uh, overdose deaths for opioids, and many of those cases are not being worked uh, as homicides. And what's concerning are the ones where they're disguising those those ones that kind of look like Skittles to kids, and they're pretending that they're pills, and people are buying them, and and they're killing them. It takes three milligrams to kill uh, someone. And so we're going to be tracking um, the communication data um, with DEA and state police, and we're going to be sharing that data collaboratively, uh, which hasn't been done before. And so that when you're working a drug trafficker uh, who's selling these poisons, it will know that person had communicated maybe in the last 30 days with someone who overdosed, and that will be searchable and usable and shareable for all those agencies to build cases. And I think that's critical in this next step moving forward. And doing things differently, not the same. You had mentioned uh, collaboratively doing things with multi-parishes. You know, our citizens buy drugs across the lake. Citizens across the lake buy drugs in Saint Tammany, and vice versa. People hopscotch around, and we can't allow our borders to be, uh, I guess, uh, hiding grounds. Um, and we can't. We, we got to work collaboratively as partners, and that's what we're doing. Um, I I love what you just said because that it, it is
3: so true, right? Uh, because as it knows no geographic boundary, and you get that force multiplier, and, and and the sharing of criminal intelligence, whether it's from the investigatory bodies or the prosecutorial bodies, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, but it, it, you would agree that that information is power.
2: Oh, it, it couldn't be. Look, intelligence is power. Doing doing things in a vacuum blindly, just going to knock these dealers off blindly one by one. And not collecting data is, is completely an antiquated way of doing this. And all you do is, you know, a lot of these offenses are probatable. you got to build and get uh, more information so that you can really have an impact to take these guys off the streets. Um, you know, for 18 years, I've been a prosecutor, and I've got a, I've got a mix of uh, – I was an assistant United States attorney for nine years – I've been a state prosecutor for nine years, and building those task force relationships was always how we could have that force multiplier response to a hot area. You know, an area we're working on right now, too, is Bogalusa. I mean, the violent crime going on over there is out of control, but that's how you have an impact. You do things collaboratively with partners. You gather data. You do things smart. You don't rinse and repeat things that are not working
3: now you bring to the office um a a lot of experience uh tell us about that
2: well i've been i've been a prosecutor since i was 25 um in my 18th year uh being a prosecutor um i'm from mandeville and i got my start commuting across the lake to the da's office in new orleans and everyone kind of knew that was the kind of charity hospital of litigation that's where you cut your teeth um i think I mean, by the time I was 27, I had 40 felony jury trials. Um, and then at 27, I became an assistant United States attorney. Uh, worked in the Western District and then the Eastern District. Don Washington had hired me in the uh, Western District, and then Jim Letton hired me in the Eastern District. And stayed chronic across designated in both areas because I like to finish my cases from whatever office I left. Um, and I've had experience doing racketeering cases, organized drug trafficking, money laundering, murder, rape, child exploitation, something I've handled in in every venue. And um, one of the things that I've loved doing is, is again, that that blend between state, federal, and local law enforcement and really working collaboratively to have an impact on our community. And in 2015, when when Warren became DA, um, I left the U.S. Attorney's Office because I wanted to come back to my hometown and kind of rebuild and reestablish an office that had been publicly embarrassed following a, uh, a federal conviction of the former DA and had that opportunity. And I've run the criminal division since 2015, supervised 100 employees during that period of time, and um, also continued to prosecute and try cases in the courtroom. I've always thought it's important to, to – you can't just tell employees to do things. You have to do it with them. And I've always believed in leading from the front, and if you've never done this, then you can never go shoulder to shoulder with your prosecutors. You know, it's easy for, for management and people to say, you need to do, you should do. But it's a whole lot more effective if I can say, let me show you. I'll do it with you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind wow. of always the approach I've taken. And you've been in a
3: in a number of high-profile cases. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were part of the prosecutorial team uh, in one of the cases that we had in Jefferson Parish, the Harvey Hustlers uh, case, the, the dismantling of that gang, uh, which was, had far-reaching impacts throughout the Gulf South area, if, if my memory serves me correct.
2: Yes, sir. Um, originally, the current U.S. Attorney, Dwayne Evans, uh, he did uh, an initial wave of that, and then I was tasked to, to complete it and remained as as lead counsel on that with uh, FBI and, and your old agency with Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. and. We, uh, golly, I think between the federal and state uh, DA's offices, we also partnered with Jefferson Parish DA's office. I think they convicted like 16 guys. We convicted 20-something guys. And and really that case had a monumental impact on violent crime on the West Bank of Jefferson Parish. Um, And we actually won the FBI Director's Award for that because of the impact that it had, uh, I think, for years. And I think you're probably the best person to attest to the impact of a case like that. No, there's no doubt. In fact, I still
3: remember walking into our criminal intelligence center and just seeing these charts you know, and arrows pointing in every direction. It was mind numbing uh, when you saw the breadth or depth of it and kind of uncovered it in a very weird way. But once again, uh, when you brought that force mul- multiplier together of, every- of everybody, you were able to dismantle uh, this criminal enterprise that was one of the largest, I think, that we've ever dismantled in the greater New Orleans area, if my memory serves me correct.
2: Yeah, and it was, look, it was a team effort. And, when you, and the way we were able to do that case, we went back 10 years and grabbed like field interview cards, putting two people together historically by an address. And it was the good everyday police work that was very well documented in Jefferson Parish at that time that allowed us to go back in time and grab those cases. And you kind of just put a puzzle piece together. Um, And look, it was interesting. It was impactful. Those are the things that we really enjoy doing um, and and love doing it. And those are things you that we enjoy doing. You were the different.
3: you were the lead prosecutor, though, in a public corruption case with um, against the former Saint
2: Tammany Parish Sheriff Jack Strain as well, right? Yes, sir. So also while here, um, because of some of these relationships, you know, we were at one point we were contacted by FBI. Um, concerning, you know, public corruption activity, of the former sheriff strain and guys that I'd historically worked for reached out and, you know, debriefed us on a developing matter with some interviews and same type of deal. You know, we we have built in this office, most DA's offices, you know, are reactive. There's an arrest and then there's a prosecution. We have blended a proactive component where we partner with law enforcement to investigate and move forward. And that's what we did in the strain case. We partnered with FBI, IRS, and then we also brought in an outside investigative team because we didn't want to have any local taint um, when looking into that, so we brought in state police and oddly brought in U.S. Postal Inspection Services, who actually specializes in child exploitation, and um, ultimately resulted in an indictment of the former sheriff. I was the lead counsel, and we convicted him for multiple counts of aggravated rape, child molestation, indecent behavior with juveniles, and he's serving multiple life sentences. So I was the lead counsel on that as well.
3: Colin, a lot of my officers over the years said that they, uh, that in cases that they were making on, on these task forces uh, that were presented under, uh, under Warren's uh, leadership and yours, that they really liked uh, the screening process of your office. Tell us about it.
2: When we first came in, there was, there was a, a gentleman who was a very, very experienced guy, really, really good guy but he was working part-time and when we first came in the DA's office was charging about 2,600 defendants with felonies per year and you had a guy working part-time reviewing every one of those cases by himself with the exception of a a sex crimes reviewer and that's just that's not a real review you're not really looking at things and so what we did was we've expanded that department to five really experienced um, prosecutors one guy you probably remember Ronnie Gratianette was a Jefferson mm-hmm. Parish prosecutor as well, and he was a long-time ADA here. It's just guys that have 20, 30 years' experience, 15 years' experience looking at all these cases, um, making them better, which has allowed us to have a, a 93 to 96% acceptance rate of felony arrest in this parish because we really work with them very early, try to make them – because, look, it's probable cause. is not the same thing as reasonable beyond a reasonable doubt, and so we right. try to really – shape those cases to be prosecutable i think that partnership and that development of that screening department has been critical also what i think you'd be familiar with is you know major crimes we do a charge conference protocol that didn't exist before we came in and what that is we sit two weeks post-arrest on major rapes homicides or other complex cases we sit in a room two weeks post-arrest and talk about everything to make sure that we're not missing an opportunity because once the opportunity is gone you can't get that evidence back. And our cases is only are only as good as the evidence collected, the questions asked. And if that opportunity is missed, then you know, we're sitting there in, in court with not a whole lot to operate with. So we made sure we've we've had a very robust partnership uh in regard to those types of cases. And and not to in addition to that, the sex crimes cases is a is a major, major area of concern uh for this parish. And we've developed a A similar protocol with this multidisciplinary team approach where we triage every child abuse case with um, the Children's Hospital, Children's Advocacy Center, the law enforcement officers who make the case, our our investigators, forensic interviewers, every single child that reports abuse, those cases are roundtabled in a similar fashion, which has led to us having a 95.6% conviction rate for individuals that abuse children in in, in both St. Tammany and Washington Parish. Yeah, I hope uh, folks are listening.
3: 93 to 96 percent, 95 percent conviction rate. That's where it is, you know, because the resolution of crime, uh, a lot of crimes committed. The clearance rates are not extraordinary anywhere. I mean, in St. Tammany, they they actually post some fairly extraordinary clearance rates. But that's where it's all about is bringing it collectively and collaboratively together. Jay Collins Sims, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Appreciate your time, your insight, and best of luck in your run for DA in St. Tammany and Washington Parishes. Um, Have a great Christmas uh, and holiday season.
2: No, you do the same. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you to everyone listening.
3: All right. That's Jay Collins Sims, interim DA in St. Tammany and Washington Parish, and announced candidate for DA in those parishes as well we'll be right back folks 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart jewelers talk and text line stay with us welcome back folks um i enjoyed that conversation with Jake collins sims interim da in st tammany and washington parish and we'll have his opponent who also qualified to uh run for that office on uh we'll try and get him on uh later this week or the beginning of next week uh, it's getting more and more difficult during the holidays to get folks uh, get contacted and, and everything else that goes along with that. I want to remind folks that um, Santa is going to be with us on Friday. And I uh, just got a number of texts of uh, folks uh, talking about that's their favorite show of the year. I would agree. I, I just absolutely uh, love uh, having Santa in. And um, so, uh, Get your kids ready. Get them to call in. We love the conversation that they that they have with Santa. And uh, we're really looking uh, forward uh, to it as well. Um, we covered a lot of territory today. And uh, I got a couple of texts. Uh, you know, Newell, can't you talk about something a little bit more uplifting, you know, during the Christmas season? And we will. Uh, but these are issues that are cropping up every day. Uh, you know, we have the OIG reporting certain things out. Uh, we've, we've had uh, other, other challenges with um, law enforcement and criminal prosecutions. Today, the DA announces that former superintendent of police here and the former chief in Baltimore, Michael Harrison, uh, is joining his office. Uh, and what that means, I'm, I'm not exactly sure the role that he's going to play um, I just saw the uh, the breaking news of the D.A. said he was uh, enlisting um, the former uh, chief, and, and I would tend to think that that would be a good thing, depending on how they use him and, and how much they're willing to listen to him, because he brings uh, a breadth and depth of experience, not only from here, but from Baltimore as well, and one would agree, two tough towns as it relates to policing. We'll be right back. We'll check in with Scoot to see what he has coming your way. In just a moment, stay with us. Scoot joins us. What do we have coming up, Scoot?
4: Well, uh, Jason Williams is announcing that he's hiring uh, former NOPD chief Michael Harrison to help consult him with fighting crime. I think that's a good move. Also, an ER doctor has a list of the top Christmas toys that could be dangerous to your kids. And we'll talk about some of the toys that we played with that, based on today's standards, we would never be allowed to play with today.
3: It's amazing we're alive.
4: It's true. It's true.
3: (laughs) Scoots up next, folks. Stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed today's show. We'll see you all again in the morning.